Galatians 3, we're going to read from the beginning and end of the chapter. So, we begin um, at verse 1. Paul is writing to this church tempted to turn away from what they have come to believe. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then we jump forward to verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." Amen. We're going to turn uh, now to the book of Hebrews. Second reading is from Hebrews chapter 12, page 1008 in the church Bibles, Hebrews 12. Again, we'll read from the beginning and then from later in the chapter. So, we'll begin at verse 1. We just had uh, that uh, great chapter, Hebrews 11. Um, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of Uh, things not seen, and then a great list of uh, people throughout Old Testament history who trusted in God and into New Testament times, who trusted in the Lord um, uh, throughout all things. Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And then at verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. The former chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs tells the story of a man called Cohen who moved into a new neighborhood and started attending the local synagogue. He received a warm welcome, and he enjoyed the service until the time came for the reading of the Torah. Uh, and then pandemonium broke out. Uh, half of the congregation stood up and yelled at the other half to stand for the reading of the Torah. Uh, the other half sat stubbornly and shouted back that that lot were all heretics and they should sit for the reading of the Torah. And uh, confused and distressed, Cohen went to see a wise old rabbi and he said, uh, uh, tell me, should we stand when the Torah is read? And the rabbi stroked his beard and said, no, that is not the tradition. And uh, Cohen said, so we should sit. And the rabbi said, no, that is not the tradition. And so by this time, Cohen's very confused, and he says, well, you know, the reason I'm asking is that in my synagogue, half the congregation stand and half of them sit, and then they shout abuse at each other. Rabbi immediately looked up and said, yes, that is the tradition. <laughs> Sadly, throughout its history, the Christian church has been no less prone to division over just about any issue you could think of, and probably a good few more that would never have occurred to you. I don't know if they still have it. They, they used, there used to be in the religion section at the National Museum of Scotland a massive wall display showing all the uh, divisions and subdivisions and schisms and splits in the Scottish church over the last several hundred years. Sadly, it does take a massive wall to display that story. It's a bit like a map of the London underground, but far more complex. Scotland has seen more than its fair share of division within the church. And so what then does it mean for Paul to say, as we read him saying um, earlier in Galatians 3, you are all one. 
in Christ Jesus. Is that a fine aspiration, but ultimately an unrealistic one? And in particular, what does it mean to say, as we do in the Creed, that we believe in the communion of saints? Um, I guess that expression is not not an everyday expression, is it? So, uh, it probably needs a bit of packing. I believe in the what of what? Let's begin with the saints. I don't know what images come to your mind when that expression is used. It's maybe elderly men in white robes with beatific smiles and polished halos. Those are the saints. Holy people, holier than thou people. The word saints means the holy ones. That's just what the word means. Uh, Maybe you think of people who've achieved a certain standard of goodness. Uh, Maybe it's Mother Teresa. Maybe it's someone you know. Well, she's an absolute saint, that one. We use that kind of language, don't we? Let me tell you who Paul would have had in his mind when he used the expression. When he addressed several of his New Testament letters to the saints in Ephesus or Philippi or Corinth or wherever it might be, the picture he would have in his mind would have been the people he knew he was writing to, many of whom he had met. He would have pictured a motley crew of foul-mouthed pagans and idolaters and adulterers and thieves and prostitutes and every possible variety of sinner, people just like everyone else, except that they had received the mercy of God in the gospel and been called to a new life of faith and discipleship. That's the saint. Our problem uh, when we think of holiness or of the saints, the holy ones, is that we instinctively put things back to front. Our, our, Our fallen human nature wants to reverse the order of things. We want the logic to go like this. You achieve godliness, and that makes you a saint. The way the gospel works is God makes you a saint, and therefore you seek godliness. The point, as we saw last week when we were thinking about the holy Catholic church, is that holiness is not ultimately about achieving a certain moral standard at all. Holiness is about being set apart to belong to God. That's what the word means. The thing that characterizes anything as holy is that it belongs to God and is therefore devoted to His purposes. And that applies to all Christian men and women without exception. To be a Christian means that you have been called out of the world. You don't belong to the world anymore. You've been called instead to belong to God and to serve Him. That's holiness, and that's why the category of saint includes not some special class of Christian, but every last Christian there is. If by God's grace you have repented of your sin and turned to Christ and trusted in Him, if if you have said that you belong to Him and want to follow Him, then you are a saint. You are one of the saints. And that means then that you're part of the communion of the saints. Now, I hope it's obvious that's not a reference to the Lord's Supper. That's not communion in the sense of bread and wine, although it's related in the sense that the sacrament gives expression to what we're talking about here. But, that, but the, the communion of the saints is a way of speaking about the fellowship which all Christians have with one another because they're Christians. We have fellowship or communion with one another. <clears throat> And the verses we read earlier from Galatians explain how that works. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Don't worry about sons, sons and daughters. It's, it's gender neutral. You are all sons of God through faith. Uh, that, if you're a believer, is the central reality of your life. 
vast number of problems in the Christian life come from not realizing that. If you're a believer, that is the central reality of who you are. A huge amount in our culture today about identity, what my identity is. This is who you are. You are a child of God through faith. It's the very core of you. You're someone who has been united to Jesus Christ. There is a God-given, unbreakable bond that binds you to Him and that can never, it can never be, be pulled apart. There is, there is no power in the universe that can, that can pull that apart. That's what it is to be united to Christ by faith. That's why what is true of Him becomes true of you. And that pattern is throughout the whole of the New Testament. That's why His obedience is counted as your obedience, because you're united to Him. You, God can't say, this. no, this is His obedience and not yours, because you're bound to Him. It's why you get the, the, the language of the, the New Testament. His death becomes yours. You died with Him, God's Word says. His resurrection becomes yours. You rose with Him. His risen life becomes yours. You live in Him and live eternally with Him. You are united to Him. And because you're united to the Son of God, you have become a Son of God, one of His children. You're part of His family. But of course, it's not just you, is it? This is a big family because there are countless millions of others who are in the same position before God, who are also united to Christ. And therefore, they are your brothers and sisters. And that's real. That's not just a kind of notional term that we use. It's not just an idea. It's not just a fiction. Someone is adopted into your family, in your natural family. If someone is adopted into your family, or your mom and dad adopt someone, that person is your brother or your sister. They are, and that's real. And so, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I think I said it last week, but if you're united to Him and I'm united to Him, then it follows as night follows day that you're united to me and I'm united to you. That's just the way it is. That's the communion of the saints. It is our common union, our communion with Christ. And within this family, we must therefore remember that whatever differences there are between us, and there will be, we hold in common, and we always will, the most important thing in the universe. However different our characters may be, the defining characteristic of our life and the central core reality of who we are is something that we hold in common. We can differ on secondary issues, but our understanding of what life is for is one that we share. And, and however different our life experience and natural interests might be, standing at the core of who we are as one person. And so, to affirm the communion of the saints is to recognize this. It's not just Jesus and me. Now, be careful of that. Even, even in, in evangelical circles, that's, that, that, that's often the tone of things. You know, Jesus and me, that's, that's what really matters. That's very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. So it's, an, it's a very, very deep twisting. Of course, where you individually stand before Christ is hugely important. But when you stand before Him, united to Him in one of His family, then you are part of this big, messy, noisy, magnificent family. That's what it means to say that we believe in the communion of saints. 
Lots of consequences flow from that, and we're going to look at them under two headings. Um, if you have the sheet, you'll see we're, we're suffering this morning from the failure of the English language to distinguish between you singular and you plural, unless you come from Glasgow, uh, but I just couldn't bring myself to put yous in sermon headings. So, uh, the first really significant thing about the communion of the saints is that it tells you this, you are not alone. You, singular, are not alone. The truth is, faith can be a lonely thing. In the workplace, at the school gate, in your family, at the golf club, faith can be lonely. Christians are almost always in a small minority in the world. In that respect, we're returning to, to, to a much, much more normal situation than we've been used to. The world is often hostile to us, or at least patronizing in a kind of we'll tolerate you as long as you keep it to yourself kind of way. Many of us spend most of our time surrounded by people who believe that what we believe is absolute nonsense. That the things in our lives that are the most precious things to us are just not real. They're just a fantasy. It's hard to spend all your days surrounded by people who you know think that. If we try to talk about our faith at all, we feel so self-conscious and so exposed and so alone. The communion of saints tells us that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, we are not alone. We stand shoulder to shoulder with countless millions of God's people. This is, this is really relevant. It's really relevant for us individually. It's really relevant for us um, nationally in the church in the UK today. Church in the UK feels very, very weak, but if you look across the world, if you think about the church in Africa or in South America or in Asia, there are vast armies of Christian men and women out there. We stand in a company of millions, and the communion of saints tells us that all those Christians out there are not just out there. They're here with us. They're united to us in Christ, brothers and sisters with us in one family. So, the communion of saints is an encouragement to us it's also a challenge to us about the way that we think and the way that we live. It has implications for us, and it makes demands of us, locally, nationally, internationally. Locally, the communion of the saints demands that we put aside divisions and disagreements and grudges and resentments, which are meaningless when set alongside our common union with Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote in Galatians 3 that our union with Christ destroys divisions between us. He chose as examples uh, three, the three deepest divisions of all in that culture. Um, talk about identity. This is what defined your identity in Paul's day. You were either slave or free. You were either male or female. You were either Jew or Gentile. That's who you were. And Paul says, not anymore, because you're in Christ. That's who you are. And so those things don't go to the core of who you are, and those things don't determine your standing before God. It was, it was radical beyond words for Paul to say that all of that was irrelevant and meaningless as far as our standing before God is concerned. And so there are all sorts of differences that are true. Obviously, it doesn't matter whether you like the same films as the person in the next seat whether you wear the same clothes, whether you vote for the same political party, 
whether you see things in just the same way they do, whether you wanted Brexit or didn't want Brexit, whether you felt someone in the church fellowship was a bit rude to you once, or they once sat in your seat, whatever that's supposed to mean, or, or whatever it was. It doesn't matter. Because if you're both believers, then you are in communion. You are in fellowship with that person. Your common union with Christ transcends all of that, just obliterates all of that. Now, you know, let's, let's be honest. There will always be people in the church family who you naturally get on with and people that you're not naturally drawn to. Let's put it that way, okay? Let's, I mean, can we be honest? By personality and, so, and common interests and so on, some, it's, it's easier with some than with others. That's just, that's just life. That's just how we're built. The interesting thing is that in the New Testament, uh, the, the term for communion or fellowship has nothing to do with how you feel about people. Nothing at all. Uh, the, the, the New Testament word is koinonia. It, it refers to something which is held in common. It's the word that would have been used to describe a, a, a partnership, a business partnership. You would have koinonia with your, with your business partner because that there is, is a shared interest. And, and in that, you both have an interest and you're both seeking the same thing. You're united in that business. That, that's the word that, that, that's used in the New Testament to describe our fellowship, our communion. Now, the thing about business partners is that business partners don't actually need to like each other very much to run a business. But they do need to have a shared understanding of what the business is and what they're trying to do with it. That matters. That's not to say that, that feelings have nothing to do with it. It's not okay to, well, we're just going to hate each other, but you kind of ignore that and, and, and try and get on. That, that's, that's not okay. It doesn't make any sense. But we do need to remember that as far as the Bible is concerned, and contrary to the spirit of our age, everything does not depend on feelings. We don't have communion with our fellow Christians as long as we feel good about them. We don't get an exemption from fellowship with any other believer. Maybe some of us need to hear that today. Maybe there's, I don't know. Let me say, I'm not, speaking, I'm not talking to anyone in particular here, but, but human nature is human nature. So maybe, maybe for some of us in this room, we need to hear that today. You do not get an exemption from fellowship with any other Christian, not one. Ah, uh, but no, not one. But they said, not one. But you don't know, not one. Okay? The communion of the saints. We, we actually, we have communion in Christ. It actually doesn't matter whether you want it or not, you have it. Feelings of love and concern come when we begin to see the implications of the faith and the fellowship that we share, when we begin to look at others through the eyes of Christ and see them as He sees them. Because looking at all of this more positively, the communion of saints means that all believers are called to love one another, to live for one another, to belong to one another, to be responsible to one another, to care for each other. We have a solemn calling to be a blessing to each other and to encourage each other in the faith. 
you read Calvin's Institutes? I'm sure you do regularly. Um, when it comes to discussion of this, the communion of the saints, this is what he says. Calvin says, God gives all manner of blessings to His people. God is continually blessing His people. And the point of the communion of the saints, says Calvin, is that all the blessings which God bestows upon the saints are mutually communicated to each other. So, God is bestowing blessing to people, not to a mass, but to people, and He is expecting us to communicate those blessings to one another. So, think about the implications of that. There's a question for us to apply right here. How can I communicate the blessings of the gospel to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I serve others in such a way that grace is made real to them? How can I enflesh the gospel so that Christ is communicated to others through who I am, what I do, the words I speak? I mean, you can apply that very practically on a Sunday morning. You walk in on Sunday morning, you walk out. As you walk out the door, think to yourself, what have I done today? What words have I spoken today? What attitudes have I shown today that have expressed something distinctive of the gospel. Not, not, I'm not talking about being a nice person. I'm talking about something distinctively gospel to my brothers and sisters. How have I encouraged a brother or a sister in their faith today? That's what the communion of saints is about. So, that all of that, these implications at a local level, it has implications at a national level, I mentioned last week it's the central truth of the gospel and a commitment to the reliability of the Word of God that sets the boundaries for Christian fellowship. Now, that means that we not only shouldn't have fellowship with those who deny the gospel and reject the Word, we actually can't, whether we want to or not. Again, the common union with Christ is either there or it isn't. So, you can't have Christian fellowship with someone who's not a Christian, with someone who denies the central truths of the gospel. There's no unity there to be enjoyed. All that we could do would be to pretend. But here's the other side of the, the same coin. If we do share a common understanding of Christ and the gospel with other churches, then we have no right to withhold fellowship from them. It's just the kind of bigger scale application of what I've said. You, you're not exempt from fellowship with any other Christian. Christian churches are not exempt from fellowship with one another. As I said last week, there are, there are actually perfectly good reasons to have different denominations. That's not unhealthy. Um, I do have to say that the sheer number of small Presbyterian denominations in Scotland would suggest that we're continually dividing over secondary issues rather than primary ones. That is a problem. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it is sad. It is a sad thing. As I, say, I don't know if it's still there or not, but it is a sad thing if, if what, what our national museum has to say about us is, is a big map of division. John Stott says, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than the, that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purpose and Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their Father and love one another. 
And then the communion of saints has international implications too. We have brothers and sisters around the world. Some of them are persecuted for their faith. Some of them don't have Bibles to read from, buildings to meet in, food to eat. If we say we have communion with these, our brothers and sisters, but in practical terms we do little or nothing to help them, then we've rendered meaningless the statement that we have communion with them. The reality of this is so important. We were looking recently at 1 John. Our connect groups are going through 1 John. Chapter 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because here's one of the core tests for how we know that our faith is real. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This is a testing ground for the reality of our faith, the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. Do we acknowledge in principle and do we live out in practice that we have a common union with all the saints? You are not alone. Remember that this week. Take encouragement from that, but take challenge from it too where you need to. You are not alone. But neither are you plural. Yous are not alone. And not just you here, but all Christians. This is the amazing thing. If I could gather every single Christian on earth into one place, can you imagine that? If I could gather every single Christian on earth into one place, I would still be able to say to them, you, plural, are not alone. There's more still. There's more before you and there's more after you as far as we know, unless the Lord comes. And the communion of saints includes all of that too. It's massive. We exist in what is sometimes known as the church militant. Um, that hopefully doesn't mean that we're picking fights with people all the time, um, but it means that we're still engaged in the battle of faith. We're still fighting the good fight to live radically godly lives in a radically ungodly environment. But God's church also exists in heaven, doesn't it, where all such conflict has ceased. And in contrast to the church militant, the church in heaven is sometimes referred to as the church triumphant. Christians who have gone before us, now in heaven and experiencing in a way we don't yet know, the victory and the triumph that Christ won. They are the church triumphant. The communion of the saints extends not only to the church militant here in the world, still fighting the fight, but also to the church triumphant. Those who have already died, we're separated from them by death, but we are united to them in Christ, and Christ is stronger than death. Think, think about what this would have meant in the New Testament era. The early Christians suffered severe persecutions, which included the loss of many of their friends who were martyred for their faith. It was especially important for them to know not only that the separation they experienced through their friends, uh, through the death of their friends, was, was not permanent, but also that it was not total. There was a sense in which they were surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, there are areas in this where we need to tread carefully. There are Roman Catholic ideas to do with the saints that are not biblical. The Bible does not say we should pray to the saints. Don't do that. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible does not say that we should pray for the saints or for the souls of the departed. It's amazing how often you hear that, even in churches that call themselves Protestant. Um, 
Again, the Bible clearly implies the opposite. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. The saints saints are in glory. So, so we shouldn't take this doctrine further than it's meant to go. Uh, We know, too, we're not not immediately or consciously aware of the presence uh, of of Christians who have gone before us, our fellowship with them. Um, But at the same time, we know by faith that the promise of Jesus applies to them. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And you know that this is not an abstract theological principle, is it? This applies to you, and it applies to me. In our knowledge of those we have loved, who have gone before us, who are no longer with us here, but they have gone before us. We know by faith that their existence has not ended, and that we do not need to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We know by faith that they are united to Christ just as we are. And so we are still united to them. An American man called Sheldon Van Auken, who who was a friend of C.S. Lewis, there's a great story about how um, he was about to return to America and he met uh, Lewis for lunch one day and uh, then and they parted after lunch. Um, he didn't know if he would see him again. Uh, Lewis said that he hoped I would be coming back to England soon, for we mustn't get out of touch. At all events, he said with a cheerful grin, we'll certainly meet again here or there. I shan't say goodbye. And he plunged into the traffic. I stood there watching him. When he reached the pavement on the other side, he turned round as though he knew somehow that I would still be standing there. Then he raised his voice in a great roar that easily overcame the noise of the cars and the buses. Heads turned, and at least one car swerved. Besides, he bellowed with a great grin. Christians never say goodbye. Christians never say goodbye. We never say goodbye because we have communion with the saints. We may be separated from them in body for a time, but only in body and only for a time. Before we finish, uh, I want to just draw out something of the significance of our union with those who've gone before us. I want to make that as practical as possible. So three um, things from that before we close. The first is that those who have gone before us are witnesses to the faithfulness of God. Uh, at the beginning of Hebrews 12, following on from that great, that great list of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, we're told that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses and should therefore run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Um, it's, it's often assumed um, that as we run the race, these witnesses are in the stands cheering us on like they're spectators, Uh, watching us. Um, That may be true, but the New Testament word for witnesses is is martyrs. Uh, came to have a particular meaning, of course. Uh, These were people who were witnesses to what God had done in Christ. They they may be spectators in a sense with us, but I think in in the core sense, they're witnesses in in the courtroom sense. The great uh, gallery of, of faith in Hebrews 11, the point of that is that these men and women are testifying to us about the goodness and faithfulness of God. He sustained us through everything, they're saying. We went through, at times, appalling things. If you read that, that um, account in Hebrews 11, 
but he sustained us through everything. Keep on going. He will never let you down. The witnesses tell us this. Your faith will be vindicated. Keep on trusting him, even when the road is steep and the running's hard. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. He will never leave you until your race is done and you receive the crown of righteousness that Christ has won for you. Constantly, they're they're encouraging us. Not, not, Not once through the whole of history can you find Uh, one of God's people, whose testimony will be, when I really needed him, God wasn't there for me. There is unanimous testimony to the faithfulness of God. So, they are witnesses to his faithfulness, and because of that, secondly, they spur us on to faith and endurance and obedience and thanksgiving. Because we've seen their example, because they've proved the faithfulness of God and the truth of the gospel, let us throw off everything that would hinder us and run the race We're not to worship the saints who've gone before us, but we should respect them and learn from them. And like them, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who founded our faith, the one who will finish our faith. And so, with the prospect of glory before us, we persevere. When the strife is fierce, the warfare long steals on the ear the distant triumph song. It's the church triumphant that's singing it. And hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. The saints spur us on. And then finally, the significance of the communion of saints is that we join with them in worship. When we gather to praise and worship God, we are not alone. Those verses in Hebrews 12 from 18 onwards, um, they, they speak firstly about how, God, how people approached God under the old covenant in terror and trembling because of the sheer majesty of His holiness. So, in 18 to 21, everything speaks of separation and of the problem of approaching God and, 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 and how difficult. And then everything in 22 to 24 speaks about welcome and about the accessibility of God and what Christ has opened up to us. Everything here tells us that ordinary Christians like you and I on an ordinary Sunday like today are entering into the presence of the living God. He's no less holy than He ever was, but the difference is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And because of Him, through Him, we join with the departed saints and add our voices to the praise of heaven. And so, the communion of the saints tells us that as we gather week by week, we meet not only with one another, but we come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, to God Himself, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, to His sprinkled blood. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Christ speaks, as the divines used to say, speaks eloquently of forgiveness and of grace and of welcome. Everything here says we may come because of Jesus. Your worship is made acceptable to God and is heard in heaven along with the worship of the saints. So this morning, stop and listen and hear the song of the saints. They're not far away. Some of them have been singing this morning before us. Some of them will be singing today after us. Some of them we are one with in spirit, but if you listen carefully, you can hear them. And you can join your voice with theirs to praise God, serve Him, and glorify Him forever with all His people in the communion of the saints. Let's pray.
Father, we give thanks for this one great family that is your people, for the, for the roar of praise by which the, the name of Jesus is continually acclaimed, never ceasing, praise of glory, the praise of saints on earth, joining their voices with it. Father, we thank you for this union that is ours. We pray that you would help us to make that real, uh, both in that grand sense of the, uh, all, all of your people throughout the whole of time and space, all one body, one family, one church, and in the practical realities of right here, now, today, what it means to share a common union with the Lord Jesus Christ, to be bound to Him by your grace, uh, to be bound forever, and therefore bound to one another. And Father, if there are, if there are issues in our hearts that we need to address, if there are resentments against other believers that we need to think about and repent of and address, then help us to do that, we pray. Give us grace. Make us honest before you and before others. Uh, Father, we long for this to be real. We do not want pious words which disappear into the air. We want your word to penetrate deep within us and to change us, to renew us, to have its impact in us. Do this work, we pray. Form form in us all that you would have in us in terms of our character, in terms of our living. And form us after the likeness of your Son. These things we ask in his name. Amen.